Welcome back to the Plowcast. I'm Peter Momsen, Editor-in-Chief at Plow. And I'm Susanna Black-Roberts, Senior Editor at Plow. Today, we'll be talking with Chris Tolfson about nuclear war and the obligation of nuclear disarmament post-Ukraine, and with Sam Moyne about war in general. Christopher Tollefson is professor of philosophy at the University of South Carolina. He is the author of Lying and Christian Ethics and co-author of Embryo, A Defense of Human Life with Robert P. George and of The Way of Medicine, Ethics and the Healing Profession with Far Curlin. Welcome, Chris. It's great to be here. Thank you. Chris Tollefson has a piece in our um, current issue, the problem with nuclear deterrence, the slugline is Catholic teaching on just war forbids not just using nuclear weapons, but also threatening to use them. Do you want to sort of like give our listeners a background on how that teaching came to um, came to be articulated? So there's a and really the article is about an argumentative gap that gets filled in over the last 50 years between a very well-established Catholic principle um, that extends beyond Catholic teaching into just war theory more generally about discrimination and warfare, which holds that it's impermissible to intend the deaths of non-combatants, and an extremely well also uh, very strongly held principle taught by the Second Vatican Council that that principle is violated in the Second World War. Uh, on a number of occasions by the Allies, firebombing of Dresden and Tokyo, and then most manifestly in the atomic bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, um, which are intended to bring about the, the death of many civilians in order to demoralize the enemy and end the war. So that's a pretty well-established Catholic view. Uh, there's a little bit of backsliding here and there. We, we find ourselves in the last five years um, on at least two occasions with Pope Francis saying, that not only is it wrong to use nuclear weapons, something that uh, the church has been very firm on, but it's also wrong to threaten the use of those weapons. And it's even wrong to hold hold on to those weapons. The Pope seems to be recommending um, pretty considerable steps towards disarmament. Uh, and the, the piece identifies what I think is a sort of crucial moment in the history of the last 50 years of the church's life, filling in that, that argumentative gap um, with, I think, two, two pretty intuitively correct notions. One is that if it's wrong to do something, then it's wrong to intend to do that, that something. Um, so if it's wrong for you to cheat on an exam, it's wrong for you to intend to cheat on an exam. If it's wrong, I, I don't know why I was thinking about this, but this morning I was thinking about Calvin and Hobbes. Um, if you remember, there's a bully in Calvin and Hobbes. I think Mo might be his name. Occasionally we'll just go up to Calvin and slug him. Um, that's wrong. Let's we'll stipulate that. Uh, but if it's wrong for him to do that, then it's wrong for him to wake up in the morning and say, think to himself, uh, at lunchtime, I'm going to go and slug Calvin. For it's wrong for him to intend to do what it's wrong to do. And it also seems like that intention is wrong if it's only a conditional intention. If Mo thinks to himself, I'm going to slug Calvin if he doesn't give me his lunch money. Right? It seems that that conditional intention is wrong. It involves that orientation contrary to Calvin's good and on a much larger scale of nuclear threats. Uh, it, it does involve an intention contrary to the lives of the civilian populaces who would be bombed um, if whatever the conditions that the threat outlines are met. Right? Um, so threatening to bomb civilians, threatening to engage in swapping of cities is wrong, even if the intention is only conditional. If it's an intention to do that only if your opponent bombs you first. And these principles are laid out in a book called uh, Nuclear Deterrence, 
um, Morality and Realism by John Fennis, Germaine Grisey, and Joseph Boyle, who are three very eminent late 20th century moral philosophers and theologians. And I think if you, if you accept those premises, then nuclear deterrence is wrong. And if nuclear deterrence is wrong, then it's a pretty short step from there to think that what a country should do is unilaterally disarm, even in the face of other countries that are still posing that threat. And that seems to be what the Pope is suggesting, right? that it's wrong to hold on to those weapons and that we should disarm. You talked about sort of backsliding or contrary views, even among Catholics. Do you want to, um, can you sort of give us what, what the steel man version of those arguments are and why they fail? Well, I mean, so as I mentioned in, in the Second Vatican Council document, Gaudium et Spes, the, the church says pretty clearly, um, absolutely to be condemned. It's just horrifying when a country engages in the deliberate targeting of whole cities or of significant parts of cities um, in order to bring about military ends. Um, and generally speaking, Catholics accept that as um, an indication that the bombings in uh, Hiroshima and Nagasaki were wrong. But there is a, there is a strand of thought. Um, it's present in the work of people who I think are, are otherwise extremely admirable Catholic thinkers on the matters of, of war and also on pro-life matters more generally, such as uh, Father Wilson, Miss Campbell at Notre Dame or George Weigel, the Ethics and Public Policy Center. Um, Weigel recently wrote a piece in First Things arguing that, in fact, the, the bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, although in his own words, right, it seems to clearly contradict what the church teaches, um, nevertheless was a decision that had to be taken. And Father Miss Campbell makes similar claims. And I think part of the thought here is that in some sense, a statesman takes on some kind of burden um, on behalf of the nation of acting for the common good, even if in some sense that means operating outside the, norm, the, the norms, the moral norms that are traditionally taught by the, the Catholic church. It seems to me that's not really, that's not at all the Catholic church's view. Um, for the church, if something is wrong, then what that means is it's just not to be done, period. Um, you don't weigh it against other responsibilities. You don't weigh it against other goods that are available to be obtained by doing the thing. You just rule it out with practical deliberation right away. Um, so I do think that those, those attempts to square the bombings in the Second World War with Catholic teaching, I do think that they are a form of backsliding. Now, of course, uh, we're talking right now at a time when the issue of nuclear weapons and nuclear deterrence is current in a way it hasn't seemed to be for decades, right? So this kind of backsliding isn't just about um, things that happened in the 1940s. Um, it's about things that we are doing today. And of course, uh, Ukraine is the reason for that. And uh, Taiwan too, to a, a certain extent. Uh, Ukraine gave up its nuclear weapons uh, upon independence in a deal that uh, was remembered uh, early on in the beginning of this conflict after Russia invaded it. Uh, and the kind of intuitive lesson for many observers and I think just just your average person is, wow, I mean, that was that was really too bad that Ukraine gave up their nuclear weapons. They, they just did that thing that Pope Francis and Christian teaching uh, presumably would tell them to have done and we wish they wouldn't have done it. Um, so I think it's just kind of worth noting at the beginning that we're, we're not talking about something that's purely historical or theoretical, right? Um, 
And I guess I'd like to just press in on this issue that you were just uh, highlighted for us, which is that there is some course of action that seem intuitively like they would make a lot of sense that we're saying people should just rule out of practical consideration from the get-go. That that seems kind of in conflict with the way that people try to win wars in general. It does. That's right. Um, I mean, when the when the nuclear deterrence book came out, I, one of the things that people found most objectionable about it was that it drew, I think, what had to be the obvious conclusion that unilateral disarmament was likely to have terrible consequences for the free West. Uh, and the authors were extremely clear-sighted about what those terrible consequences would be. They acknowledged the virtues of the West by comparison with the vices of the Soviet Union, uh, the radical limitations of freedom and human rights that would be a consequence of unilateral disarmament. But the underlying thought was that at least from a Christian standpoint, um, and it's difficult to see how even natural reason can deny this, if something is determined in your practical thinking or through revelation or through what you take to be the church's teachings that you accept to be something that you just shouldn't do, Yes, sometimes that's going to come with, with terrible consequences and require tremendous sacrifice on the part of those who are upholding those moral norms. Um, I think you know, it is plausible that uh, deciding not to pursue nuclear weaponry on the part of the Ukraine has played a, a part in what then has turned out to be a disastrous state of affairs for the Ukraine. From a moral standpoint, I think if they had those nuclear weapons, that would be uh, in an important sense, uh, scandalous for them. It would be an invitation for them to uh, to sin and engage in wrongdoing by being willing, in some sense, to use those weapons against uh, against Russia, um, and in ways that would be, if not violations of the principle of discrimination, almost certainly violations of the additional principle that governs right conduct and warfare of proportionality. And the use of nuclear weapons just has such immense long-range consequences for the pollution of the land and harm to people of future generations. If there wasn't intentional uh, harm being uh, directed towards non-combatants, that still the proportional use would be, would be problematic from the standpoint of just war theory. I think you know it just has to be accepted that there are, in fact, uh, sacrifices that are demanded of people who accept a moral view that holds that there are some people, some things that should never be done. And of course, nuclear weapons aside, just war theory says don't kill non-combatants in general, right? Which there are things in war that, apart from nuclear weapons, you're just not allowed to do. Uh, you're not allowed to torture an innocent person. Um, you know, to gain some military goal. No, that's right. And, you know, I start I start the piece um, for Plow by talking a little bit about the great English Catholic uh, convert, Elizabeth Anscombe, um, who wrote three pieces about this earlier in, in her career. One centered around her refusal or her protest against Oxford's granting to President Truman an honorary degree, which she thought um, shouldn't, shouldn't have been given to him on grounds that, in fact, he had participated in the murder of many hundreds of thousands of people. Um, Anscombe says, look, this is just a, this is a norm of warfare, and it's a norm of morality more generally. You can't kill people, you can't attend the death of people who aren't actually attacking you or posing some sort of threat to you. And that norm is not the sort of norm that gets lifted when the other guys do it first. 
right? It's not, uh, it's, it's not a justification for you to engage in intentional killing of civilians to say that the bad guys did it first. Um, that's part of what it means to adhere to moral norms in the course of warfare. Um, I, I think that you know it's it's easy to lose sight of that, especially in the context of a completely unjust invasion that your own country is suffering from with regard to uh, Ukraine and Russia. And it would be extremely tempting if there were nuclear weapons available to the Ukraine um, to want to use them, whether it is acts of revenge or as acts of deterrence or just to make the threat of them. But none of those actions are themselves justified simply on grounds that the Russians have behaved badly first or that they're engaged in gross violations of human rights or in war crimes. It's just not the way that morality and, and warfare operates in the just war tradition in the Catholic view more broadly, I think in any humane approach to, uh, to just fighting. I mean, a lot of these questions um, kind of do seem to me to come down to sometimes hard teachings are hard. We recently um, interviewed someone who is at, currently in Ukraine. One of the things that he was saying, which really hit home, is like he was kind of reflecting on his own um, previous uh, visits to Azerbaijan and his kind of Christian, the Christian pacifism that he had espoused then and um, feeling kind of ashamed of it and saying like, at this point, like nobody, nobody other than the people who are actually under attack, whose country is, is under attack really has any standing to be a pacifist or not be a pacifist. Um, like there, it, it's just, it's, it's just too easy to sort of stand aside and make moral pronouncements um, against, you know, about a country which, you know, when you're, when you're not, when your country is not the one being threatened. And, you know, that's the kind of thing that really kicks you in the stomach and really kind of makes me instinctively want to kind of like um, pull back on moral judgments about what Ukraine should have done or um, should not have done and, what it might might do now um but at the same time if moral teachings are right they're right and um and that's that can be a hard teaching and and one of the i guess one of the you know things that christianity says is that sometimes you have to die rather than do wrong and i it's it it all just seems incredibly difficult to actually talk about what even if it's even if it's possible to think about. Um, have you run into that kind of thing in your own writing and teaching, et cetera? Uh, absolutely. Um, and I, I have immense sympathy for the view that um, there are limits to the extent that I should be making judgments about people who are in a much, much more difficult, you know, existential crisis than, than I am. That, that same argument is made in relationship to um, problem of abortion, problem of suffering at the end of life. Um, I, you know, any one of the neuralgic issues that our culture is presented with are, are such that one could say, unless you are enmeshed in the experience of this and suffering the effects of, of this particular situation, you're not really in a position to be able to say what's right or what's wrong, or at least you should keep your judgments to yourself. I think I mean, in all of those contexts, and especially in the context of war, there are at least two things though that are additionally important. One is that, um, in some sense, our, our future as a human race 
learning to pursue peace together and to resolve conflict in ways that don't immediately default to war as the automatic way to solve them depend upon us having pretty robust discussions about what the norms for warfare should be. Um, and when those norms are violated, those, those violations inevitably tend in the direction of moving away from peace, right? They create contexts in which people seek revenge, the, the hostility goes on for generation after generation. I think it's only by having a good account of how people should act in warfare that's widely accepted that we can hope to overcome just the brutality of war, Pope after Pope. Uh, have been have thought, you know, maybe there's just no hope for such thing as a just war because we always seem to end up in a state of constant hostility when we go down that path. If we have a more widely accepted set of norms, then then that's at least some block against that. But I think also too much. Uh, I don't want to say pacifism because I'm not using it in the word in the way the word in the way that um, is is used more traditionally. Too much too much willingness to to step back and say i have no business getting involved here i have no business saying anything here uh, probably has pretty bad consequences for one's own self when one is faced as one inevitably is with the opportunity to violate something that one takes to be very important morally because a lot is at stake whether there's some great good to be achieved or whether you're going to suffer some evil and so if you think as i do along with maybe three or four other people uh, in, in the world, that it's always wrong to lie. Um, I think I would find it a lot easier to lie if I just stopped talking about it, didn't write about it, didn't make sort of a public face that identified myself as taking this position. Um, it's tempting enough to lie, right, for all kinds of reasons. Um, but, but if I hadn't sort of spoken publicly about it and made a public argument that I thought was defensible and sound, I would probably be tempted to that a lot more often. And it seems to me that something similar has to be the case here with, with regard to how we approach even the wars that other people are involved in. Yeah. I do think that like sort of creating and shoring up the utter taboo of nuclear war, um, is an important thing. And I think that one of the things that astonishes me um, in the current discussion is that there have been people who have said things like, well, what about a little tactical nuclear weapon? That might be okay. I don't think that there's anything that we know about human nature that suggests that a little use of nuclear weaponry uh, against people who also have that same weaponry won't be met with a little bit more use. Uh, and then you just get what seems to me a, a virtually inevitable escalation um, from side to side. I don't think that there's any reason to be confident that um, two countries with a full nuclear arsenal could engage in just a little bit of nuclear warfare between the two of them. Um, and that, that just seems to me, an, I mean, an overwhelming, even apart from everything that we've been talking about, um, an overwhelming prudential reason not to go down that route. What are your thoughts about sort of the ability, our ability to renew this anti-nuclear movement, um, the sort of the, the, the movement that it seemed like in the 80s was something that was, you know, people were talking about. I think it was 89 that the Greece and Finnis book came out and O'Donovan wrote a book in the same year that was, you know, making a, quite a different case, but also a case against deterrence as legitimate. Can we like renew this anti-nuclear movement um, that we've sort of like let go because it didn't really seem to be that important over the last 30 years? That's a great question. I, I mean, I, I do, I, I admire Pope Francis for um, making this really a, a kind of cornerstone of his, his papacy. I mean, he talks about it much more than you might otherwise have thought was warranted 
up until you know the last four months. Um, but at least every couple of years, and maybe more frequently, he has extremely strong things to to say about this. Um, I don't, you know, I think, uh, and and I my sense, I you know, my my understanding of the history of these movements is that this was this was also true back thirty years ago, forty years ago. Um, there there needs to be a greater alliance of what would consider people who would consider themselves part of the the pro life movement generally speaking, um, to see that, that this is also, this is a pro-life issue, one of tremendous consequence, and it needs to be addressed with the, the same energy that I think people who are jointly um, opposed to abortion and capital punishment, right, who see the need for an alliance between opposition to both of those anti-life practices, right, those are people with great energy who have the imagination to, to see two things that to others seem very different and see them as, as part of the same moral set of difficulties. I think those folks who are just tremendously admirable and are perhaps on the verge of accomplishing something great in the domain of abortion, right? they need to also widen their scope um, to, to recognize, as I think you know, people, people genuinely did in the, the 70s and 80s, that nuclear deterrence, nuclear threats, nuclear weapons are one of the great life issues that are still with us and look like they're gonna be with us you know, not in any lessening degree over the coming years. How would you sort of walk someone through um, thinking about that? Yeah, well, I, I think the the two the two pillar principles are the the value of human life, um, and and especially from a Christian standpoint, the thought that God is the the Lord of that life. I mean, each human life that is that is given is. Uh, in, you know, in a really profound sense, a special gift, a special personal gift made by the creator to that particular person. Um, and, and it's a tremendous, just an incredible violation to, to think that, that we have sovereignty over the lives of individual human beings such that we can, we can take them, whether they're the lives of unborn human beings or even the lives of convicted criminals, certainly the lives of the disabled or the aged. But then to, to move from that to a principle that is clearly, it's more difficult, but is, it seems to me, absolutely central to Christianity and to, to moral philosophy done well, which is that it's one's intention towards that good that really is the ground floor of morality. And if you think that's the case, then you're not going to be swayed by the thought that uh, there's no actual killing in nuclear deterrence, right? You might, you might, you're not gonna be swayed by the thought that actually nuclear deterrence is aimed to prevent actual killing, right? It's the, it's the intentionality, the directedness against the good of human life over which God has sovereignty that's really central to the moral act of nuclear deterrence. And, and that intentionality is, I think, I mean, if we have to recognize that uh, that that's really what, what morality is all about. It's really about a rectification of the will towards the goods that God has presented with us. And we can go wrong with regard to that will, even if our wrong intentions don't bear fruit, even if they don't get carried out. Um, it's wrong to intend to kill somebody, even if you don't succeed in killing them. It's wrong to threaten somebody with killing them, even if you don't get around to actually killing them. It's not enough just to prevent or avoid actually bringing about that death but also one needs to stand in an attitude of, I would say, reverence towards that good that includes one's intentional 
relation to that good. I think that's the crucial step that needs to be to be made here, and that to me links up really all the all the human life issues, even those that don't involve actual life but merely involve potential life. Could you clear some distinctions up for me from a Catholic uh, point of view? I'm obviously coming from a Anabaptist uh, view that sees all killing is wrong all the time. I find one thing that's interesting about this conversation is that uh, Pope Francis' teaching on nuclear disarmament seemed to be pushing people who hold the just war theory into a kind of emotional position that pacifists, uh, to use that term advisedly, as you did. What makes the nuclear deterrence different than just building up massive conventional capacity? Aquinas thought that it was always wrong for any private person to intend the death of another person of any sort. Always wrong, no exception. Um, But he also thought that self-defense was permissible. And in defending that claim, he he introduced what eventually came to be known as the idea of double effect. Um, Aquinas thought that there was a good effect, the saving of the life of, of yourself as you're defending yourself, and then possible lethal harm that might be inflicted upon the person who's attacking you as you use justified force to respond to that harm. Um, but Aquinas thought that uh, that those with public authority could intend death. He thought this in the context of capital punishment. He also thought this in the context of, of warfare, um, that authorities could intend the death of their enemies and they could also delegate others to intend death on their behalf. I think that the church has moved and you can see this in the, the catechism um, in the, the section on war uh, the church, the, the catechism makes a pretty unvarnished claim that uh, the church teaches that it's always wrong to intend death, right? and it doesn't qualify that. It doesn't make a claim that that is different for private citizens or public officials, and yet it does seem clear that the church is, has always been, is I think likely to be for the foreseeable future, not pacifist in in the sense in which I think we're we're now agreeing to to use it. And the reason for that is that the church doesn't think that every instance in which death is brought about as a result of the use of force is an instance of intentional killing, right? Um, we do accept that principle of double effect. Double effect, I think, is necessary in order to justify not just personal defense against another through the use of force that might be lethal, but also collective acts of polities that are defensive in purpose, right? It seems to me that that, that is also the direction the church ne- necessarily moves in this conversation. The only justified use of force is one that is for the sake of defense, whether of one's own country and perhaps of, of another. Um, and that ultimately to be justified, the deaths of those who are killed as a result of the use of that force can't be intended, right? They, they can't be brought about as a deliberate means in order to achieve your ends. That's a that's a very, that is another very hard teaching, sort of, certainly of the Catholic Church. If it was adopted and believed in, it would have radical consequences for how military fighting and policing, for that matter, are taught, right? You'd be taught to think of yourself as doing something very different from what most people who enter the army are taught to do. And if you look at it in that, in that guise, then nuclear weapons isn't really different from the rest of the church's teaching on the ethics of killing. The teaching simply is, that there's to be no intentional killing of human beings, right? um, and that any death that does result as a use of force has to be has to be a side effect of an otherwise defensive intention. 
Um, I think that's that is the most radical part of the the story of what's going on in this development of, of Catholic teaching. But I also think that it's it's the most important. I think that distinction allows us to separate out two things that are often just collapsed together. Um, people talk pretty regularly about the justified use of force or the justified use of violence that the just war tradition um, defends. But I think we should say that uh, the just war theory in its strictly Catholic form um, only permits justified use of force. It doesn't permit justified use of violence. Violence just is force when it's motivated by some intention that's not, not upright. And there's nothing intrinsically wrong with the use of force. If I push my child out of the way of a car and in doing so break his or her arm, right, nobody's going to talk about that as a use of violence. Right? I used force in order to defend somebody. It did have harmful consequences, but those weren't part of my intention. It's kind of a very small example, very personal example, but it's one that I think the church's view is needs to be expanded to uh, not just individual acts, but to corporate acts, even on a geopolitical scale, even when the existence in some sense of nations is at stake. I'm sorry, that's, that's a lot like compressed into a pretty short narrative, Peter, but that's the sort of direction that I would take in answering your question. Well, I, you know, and I, I, I appreciate that. I obviously, from my point of view, uh, applaud the, what I kind of see is the chipping away action <laughs> of, of condemning nuclear deterrence, uh, because it is to me hard to distinguish between a small tactical nuke and some of the big conventional, uh, bombs that have been developed and, you're really talking a bit of, about a, a a spectrum at some point, not a hard line, um, and I find that super interesting. Uh, and there is, as you you point out in the New Catechism, uh, a condemnation of intentional killing by anyone. Uh, that seems like a a genuinely big deal, which you know if you look at what actually happens down the Hudson River for me and uh, at West Point in terms of what kinds of military doctrines are, are being taught. It's kind of incompatible uh, with... With what goes on. Uh, yeah. <laughs> well, it's incompatible with, with a, a, desensit- a deliberate desensitization to the act of killing that is pretty central to military training. I, I mean, I completely agree with that. And I, I think, of course, that same attitude then seeps down into our popular thought about even individual acts of self-defense. I think people who have guns in their houses um, on grounds that they will serve to prevent unjust intruders from coming in and threatening them, what they typically think is that if such an intruder came in, it would be permissible to shoot to kill. Um, I think that's not the Catholic view. I think that's not the view of a well-worked out natural law thinking. I think there needs to be much better pedagogy about the morality of defense, whether individual or collective, um, informing our children, informing citizens, informing our leaders. That's a very, that's a tall order, of course. Um, I'm doing my little bit, uh, but uh, I think the, you know, the cultural sense that it is permissible to intentionally kill goes very deep and pervades many, many facets of life, um, even that those of us who are you know, opposed to something like abortion you know, might think, oh, well, over here, 
right? This sort of thing is permissible. I mean, it is still the case that the church thinks, the, the Catholic church thinks that those with rightful authority and a polity do have an obligation to act on behalf of their citizenry to, to defend them, right? To, to act for the sake of, of peace and justice. Um, and I think that those authorities can do that even mindful of the fact that inevitably in the context of, of fulfilling those responsibilities, mistake, moral errors will be made, moral crimes and sins will probably be committed. I think what they need to do is have a firm resolve to avoid being responsible for those and to identify them when they're present. And I guess as we are climbing into the pacifism thing, and, and it's, as you've said, it's a terrible word to use, and we're just using it as a kind of stand-in, right? Anabaptists and the early church, for that matter, who were, uh, quote, more pacifist to a larger degree than subsequent churches uh, have been, uh, never denied that the government could use force, right? Uh, And that there was a responsibility to protect the innocent and, in fact, punish the wicked, right? Um, That's Romans 13. The Anabaptist point of view has always been, well, that's the government's job, not Christians' job. The thing is that there's a way at which giving permission to use force to the government allows greater and greater uses of force uh, and invites basically the kind of sinful, wrong use of force um, in, in more and more cases. And I guess just as a historical matter, it, it does seem there's been very few wars that haven't claimed just cause and that haven't um, claimed right conduct, uh, at least while they were happening. What, what are the kind of guardrails against that happening? Yeah, I, you know, the, the Catholic view is similar to the view that you just outlined in that, but it but draws the boundaries a little bit differently. And the Catholic, Catholic Church has never denied that there are some Christians whose special vocation means that they shouldn't have anything to do with, with war. Uh, Aquinas talks about the, the impermissibility of clerics fighting in war. Um, I think, you know, so we draw the boundaries a little bit differently, but I don't see, I don't think that we see the dangers all that much differently. Um, I remember, I mean, so this was a long time ago when I was fairly youthful, but still it, it's vividly stuck in my mind having a conversation with Joseph Boyle, one of the authors of the Nuclear Deterrence book, um, and he was talking about the Vietnam War, uh, which was a war that um, he and Grizet uh, had been both very opposed to. I mean, Grizet was very outspoken about the immorality of the Vietnam War. And, and Boyle said, he said, it just, it, it breaks my heart to think of all the young men who must have died in moral sin, mortal sin in Vietnam, right? They were, they were sent out to carry out a task for which they were morally unprepared I mean, life is, is rife with, with moral hazards. Um, I think it's a real problem. And I don't think that we do enough in this particular context to, to address it. Uh, but, you know, the spiritual stakes are enormous. Thank you so much, Chris. And we look forward to having you on again. Samuel Moyne is Henry R. Luce Professor of Jurisprudence at Yale Law School and Professor of History at Yale University. And for this issue, he's given an interview to Phil Clay, entitled, War is Worse Than Almost Anything. Well, welcome, Sam, to the Plowcast. We're so glad uh, to have you on. And you've done a lot of work on 
issues of war and on human rights, specifically looking at how Christian intellectual traditions have, have played into those. Could you just uh, tell us a little bit about your latest book, Humane, How the United States Abandoned Peace and Reinvented War? The book is, is trying to place our time in a longer historical perspective. And I'm very interested in you know the way in which American war has been made in some cases and to some extent less brutal than it was before. And this was intentional. And I try to show that it is a legal project, you know, also a moral and political project. And it came to, you know, high visibility in Barack Obama's presidency when his main speeches about the war on terror first when he accepted the Nobel Peace Prize in late 2009 and then four years later when the drone program uh, was rolled out kind of featured this claim that while great powers may have to fight some wars, uh, and maybe do so indefinitely, they can sign on to a moral way of fighting them, making them more humane. And I just wondered how had we ended up here that, you know, uh, central to like American thinking about war would be less whether to have it, uh, how long it lasts, and much more is it fought, you know, humanely enough yet? And so I look back and I try to show that there were these, you know, originally Christian traditions that um, had had worldwide ramifications, uh, and they they really stressed the importance of avoiding war or stopping it once it starts. And and those climax, I think, in the middle of the twentieth century. Although there are some you know, vestiges of them, I think most notably in George McGovern's peace candidacy at the end of the Vietnam War. And I guess my trouble is we've lost those. They've become less credible or gotten marginalized. And instead, we've substituted this ethic, which also has some Christian sources um, of reducing suffering in ongoing conflict. And, you know, I'm not against that. You know, if we have to have war, it ought to be less brutal and more humane, if possible. And those who struggle to make it humane are are doing a noble thing. But somehow we could retrieve that older focus on not having unjust wars uh, or stopping them once they start. So is there a conflict between making war more humane and the older tradition you know, associated with McGovern or the older pacifist movement. If you or I mobilize around the death penalty, supposing we think it's wrong, full stop, we may decide that for the moment, we, our best, you know, our best tactic is to reduce the cruelty within it, the way it's administered. Uh, but advocates in that space except that there's a risk when you you know improve morally the 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 way that violence is meted out and it's that it becomes more acceptable to at least some people and therefore harder to contain let alone end as such and i'm just saying that that conflict is potentially happening in the war space now that after 
all these centuries, there's there's been a political and legal movement to um, you know reduce the suffering in it by prohibiting you know the targeting of civilians or prohibiting excess collateral death of civilians when combatants are the target. So is this a case where, you know, our desire to stop the war, if we think it's unjust, is, is, is conflicting with this other desire, also noble, to make it more humane? That's an interesting analogy to death penalty activism, because historically, especially back in the 90s, when the anti-capital punishment movement was really getting um, a bit of traction, um, there was a split down the middle of it between those who would argue strongly for life without parole as a replacement for capital punishment as this more humane alternative, and those who were trying to confront um, what they saw as injustices in the system as a whole. And um, there's, a, there's this kind of split um, it was definitely a demographic split, too, um, down the center of that movement of people who said, you know, actually, life without parole is arguably more horrible than capital punishment. And to roll that out as the, the humane solution is uh, the medicine's worse than the disease. I mean, I close my book by raising the prospect that we could succeed in making warfare so humane that in a sense the violence is not left in war and only the the geopolitical domination of one people over another um and that sounds really sinister to me i mean it's utopian for some like that's what they're aiming for um but it seems like not worth striving for at least not by itself would want to not just reduce suffering, but reduce, you know, the, the domination. You know, in your pages, I raised an edgier comparison because Leo Tolstoy raised it, and it's with the old project of humanizing slavery. And, you know, you could have these same debates, like, was it wrong to attempt to reduce the cruelty of slavery when you thought, maybe rightly, that you couldn't, mountain abolitionist campaign. You didn't have the coalition yet. What I worry about at the end of the book is that we're kind of slowly crossing into a threshold where we're inventing something that may not seem like war anymore, but actually it's it's war without the violence um, or without as much of it, because it seems like we, we, could, we could be lying to ourselves about the, this, this thing that's, that's being humanized the um, essay that we're referring to here, and we'll drop a link in the show notes, Tolstoy's Case Against Humane War by Samuel Moyne appeared in Pages of Plow, and it's uh, a kind of pre-publication excerpt from the book Humane. Uh, definitely worth checking out both. The, uh, of course, the, the case where we saw that happening a lot is in with drone warfare in Afghanistan uh, and one remark you make in the prologue to your book, in our time, swords have not been beaten into plowshares. They've been melted down for drones. So there's another aspect to this where the drones symbolize um, violence that only goes in one direction, right? Where the inflictor of violence uh, is at no personal risk. And that seems something that uh, 
also belongs to this idea of this clean, humane war. Uh, we just don't see the mess afterwards. As I, you know, thought about it and, and worked on the kind of literature, um, especially on wars of empires like the British and French in the old days, you know, asymmetry is not a novelty. Uh, we have, you know, famous battles that have taken place, and I mentioned some in the book where it's like the casualty ratio um, between Europeans and non-Europeans is so lopsided with, you know, the Kosovo bombing, which was called virtual war. And with drones, you get a situation in which there's literally no risk. Um, in Kosovo, your plane could go down. If the drone goes down today, no Americans die. Um, and so it's the asymmetry is perfected. So to me, this big change happens that the drone epitomizes. We should say that on this podcast, uh, we have some disagreement. I'm uh, from the Anabaptist tradition that has historically been pacifist. Uh, Susanna is Anglican and she is not. And so I am, I'm a just war theory person. I am a just war dove. So I'm very, very cautious, but I'm not a pacifist. So maybe Sam will, will, will mediate between us here. Um, what, what you're seeing in your book, to some degree, is a war between uh, two Christian traditions of war. Uh, one based on the prophecy of Isaiah that, that promises that swords will be beaten into plowshares, this idea that, you know, when the kingdom comes, uh, whenever that is, however you visualize that, um, war is one of the things that gets abolished. And then a more pragmatic um, Christian view that sought to minimize violence, that accepted that that war is going to happen, and since we're going to do have war, well, let's at least make sure it's less horrible. Uh, and as somebody who only conditionally uh, will sign on to Christian just war theory, sort of as a as a tool to get somewhere else, um, I, I I would have, you would have to admit. And I think you write in your book, Sam, that this is true. The attempt to humanize war has been successful in some ways. Less people died in Iraq than died in Korea and Vietnam. I think I would mediate by, you know, siding with Susanna, but saying that it, it turns out that almost all wars are unjust in their initiation and continuation. And then I think something the just war tradition missed but is so vivid in our time is that even when you have a just war, uh, you're setting up the possibility of protectual abuse and you're creating a more permissive environment for later actors. And, you know, I was involved as a committed, you know, just war, uh, you know, partisan to the Kosovo campaign, uh, worked in the National Security Council on it and Yet, I think we have to judge what it what it meant differently after its its precedent is invoked in Iraq by our country, and after its precedent is evoked the other month by Vladimir Putin in Ukraine. So that said, I I agree that we're you know we're we're, we're ultimately on all you know everything operating in the aftermath you know or ongoing reality of. The Christian traditions and even those who purport to be secular owe a huge debt just for the frameworks of their 
ethical thinking to those traditions. I'm interested in, you know, the sources, but also in how we can make, you know, arguments to, to for a reset in our warmongering, if you will, more credible both to Christian and secular and other folk alike in, in our moment. Well, thanks for mediating, Sam. Uh, I, I can live with that. And, you know, the, the interesting thing is whenever we argue about this, which is often, the fact is that, you know, as, as the great pacifist Stanley Hauerwas has pointed out, just war theory is a pacifist's best friend. Because uh, if you would really apply it, you'd have very few wars uh, to start with. There is also this sort of third tradition, which I feel like is in some ways more akin to what you're getting at or what you're attempting to do, and also to what you're sort of seeing in a, a newer um, approach to harm reduction, which is the peace and truth of God movement, or I don't know if you'd call it a movement, but like sort of shtick, I guess, um, which I, in a, in a way, I think is even more effective than just war theory at kind of massive harm reduction in, um, you know, especially as it was applied in sort of the early, uh, you know, let's try to attempt to get these French and German tribes to stop killing each other occasionally. Um, and then maybe like, so I think it was originally like, you can't kill each other on Sundays. And then it's like, you can't kill each other on Sundays and Wednesdays, and then during Lent. And then it just kind of kept like moving. And it really, to a certain degree, it was a fantastic psyop, which I deeply love by, you know, the, the early evangelists of those, you know, extraordinarily brutal Europeans. That kind of approach is really helpful because with, a, with cultures like those, it's kind of like, well, if you're not going to do war, like, what are you going to do? Like, what, what's your, what are you going to do with yourself? And just getting people used to not fighting um, and maybe interested in doing other things and uh, sort of seeing how things can be different was, I think, essentially what made civilization in Europe possible. Um, and I wonder whether that model might be even more useful for us. Like, let's get America not at war occasionally and see where we can go with that. I'm totally with you. And I, I love the idea that we, we should think of the truce of God tradition as, as, as a kind of more pragmatic, less, less kind of theoretical um, set of resources than the, the kind of parallel just war tradition. And, and I totally agree that it, it it does resonate with some things I'm saying, which are basic is basically can we have a few few less wars? Um, not not you know maybe we end up evolving into pacifists, but for the moment, just to get a foot in the door and 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 you know bypass one or more of these misbegotten wars. But I also wanted to raise this disquieting possibility, which we we covered before, and it, when it comes to the struggle to contain the brutality of the fighting that harm reduction can actually actually postpone an abolitionist stance like could we could we not have war on tuesday that it doesn't come to seem more legitimate to have wars all the other days of the week i don't think it would i think the risk to me that making war humane seems riskier um than, you know, canceling a few wars. Now, of course, since your book came out, uh, Russia invaded Ukraine, and 
the issue of war focus, uh, changed its focus from the Middle East to things happening in Europe, at least in ways that it's talked about in U.S. media. It seems like just a single war breaking out can kind of wipe out any gains that might have been made, uh, either by humanizing or abolishing efforts, because there's this thing that kicks in um, as soon as, you know, there is a real fight going on. It's, it's amazing how quickly the public conversation changes. That almost strikes me as like a really, really tough dynamic that the broader peace movement, whether pacifist or not, has never really found a way of cracking, uh, cracking through that. The Ukraine thing, you know, has revived a certain set of assumptions about the necessity of, you know, American, you know, funding of participation in wars. And it's just a very hard thing to to face down. But I, I do think it's not I think it's wrong to think of it as, you know, um, like a, a binary or light switch, either we're against or for war. There's these things are it's more like the tide. And, you know, we we can be somewhere in a process um, and we don't lose all our gains. And I think there's there's always a chance to, you know, to to um, have pretty fundamental changes. You know, there was one in American history, as I talk about in the book in 1941, where we we chose to be a global hegemon with all the wars that subsequently required. And there was a process of revisiting that role in the later phases of, you know, the second decade of the war on terror. And now we're back in a really interesting situation. I do think it's quite interesting that in the early days of the war, there was a sudden interest, really like never since Vietnam or even the Nuremberg trials, in holding statesmen to account for starting illegal wars. And if that's taken seriously by Americans, you know, elites or, or masses, it's, it, it, I think we have an opportunity to press to make sure it's not selective. That it's not just, you know, statesmen who we don't like who get held to account. That wasn't, you know, that's, you know, selective justice is not justice. And so we, we have, but we have an opportunity and something to work with there and the new, you know, prominence of concerns about people who start wars that are unjust and obviously incredibly damaging. In the interview with with Phil, you do talk about the kind of like odd way in which um, Putin felt the need to frame his action in terms of international law. And you imply that international law, that law has a kind of magic, um, a good kind of magic, that once it's accepted, um, requires people to justify themselves using that framework. Um, and you obviously sort of point out that that can be deceptive, that can be, you know, you can bamboozle people using that, but it does largely seem to be a potential force for good to me. You know, the old French moralist said hypocrisy is the tribute vice pays to virtue. And it, it, it's not necessarily the case that it's, it's like a, an, an, a win to have um, international laws, the language of virtue, but it's clear that it has become that. And because otherwise you can't explain how Putin, who's about to embark on a war of aggression, spends a lot of time um, 
you know, embracing international law and claiming that the West violated it, starting a lot of illegal wars, which is true. Um, now, maybe we go back and we say it it could be superior to to have statesmen invoking the categories of just war, which are more moral categories and not the United Nations Charter or, you know, other instruments. Um, I, I think that, you know, those legal instruments have set a certain baseline. Um, they're pretty restrictive. They're actually more restrictive than just war theory, which had some more permissive elements. Um, and so to me, it's not so much that it's about law now, it's that the content of the law, the moral content of the United Nations Charter is, is more restrictive than, you know, anything prior centuries entertained. And part of the reason is because 20th century war was just so terrible um, that it was thought as a default to just prohibit it. Um, and that was a victory of, you know, uh, Peter's pacifist friends in the past that they, they really did reset a kind of ethical expectations and, and got them embedded in law in the middle of the 20th century. And that's, that's like a precious thing to me. Law is a tool. It's a moral tool. And it's what we have now. And it is amazing that Putin embraced it when, uh, you know, he was ordering its violation too. You just said, Sam, um, you don't see right now the peace movement having much of an in or much of a way of, of yanking the levers of power. Now there is uh, this leftist inflected peace movement, right? But there's also a very old anti-interventionist right, uh, which was quite recently in power. Um, any horseshoe possible there? Oh, absolutely. In fact, I, you know, I'm part of this thing called the Quincy Institute, founded by Andrew Basevich and some people on the left. And, you know, it was a kind of extremes meet against the middle project. And, um, you know, I've even written in other fora like Dissent Magazine about why it's not a compromise, let alone a rotten one, to kind of work with your political enemies um, in some situations. And I think this is one. Now, it's very revealing that when it's come to the Ukraine war, that the congressional left represented by Bernie Sanders or the so-called squad has, has not stuck to its emergent critique of American war and, you know, gave, um, you know, Joe Biden more billions than he actually asked for um, in the most recent funding vote, whereas those, you know, kind of so-called isolationist uh, Republicans voted against and partly for partisan reasons, but partly because, as you say, they reflect this right-wing tradition of wanting a non-interventionist uh, and non-entangled uh, America. And so I, I think it's incredibly interesting that, you know, on my side, the progressive side, you know, there's not much support right now for a, a push against 
militarism in general and U.S. militarism in particular. And that puts you know people like me in a difficult situation, and it I don't see how you don't look across far across the ideological spectrum for allies in that kind of situation. Now, note that you know Trump uh, out of office said that he would have prosecuted a war against Putin in response to this intervention too. And in, in that case, you would have seen the squad vote against funding because a lot of it is just partisan opposition. Um, and, you know, I do narrate in the book how what we call the left in the United States, the Democratic Party, um, after, you know, the long period when it actually had the this Midwestern Christian pacifist tradition well represented in it, including in its leadership, um, has really kind of um, converted in part because, you know, McGovern lost so badly to a, 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 a different stance, which is always very worried about uh, being accused of being, you know, dovish or soft, you know. Barack Obama was said to have opposed two Georges in setting his foreign policy. One, his immediate predecessor, George W. Bush, but then, you know, his Democratic forebear, George McGovern. And I, I think that it, it is, it, it, there, there, it's really important to see kind of anti-war traditions on the left, but we should also acknowledge that you know, we're dealing with two very warlike parties in the in in on the in, in American politics, and there's something to choose between when you compare them. But in in a, in a kind of global framework, I think we we have to see them as much more alike than different, especially in the last fifty years on these questions. There's again a, a kind of interesting parallel to capital punishment. You know, Bill Clinton famously presided over the execution of Ricky Ray Rector while he was running for office, just to kind of prove his his, his toughness, and he wasn't like that kind of soft leftist. I guess I'd like to return to: uh, Is there any way to actually flip that switch off? You know, you mentioned earlier there was an actual movement that managed to largely reconfigure international law. That actually argued for the abolition of war. Is that a, a plausible, a realistic goal? And based on you know your work through the history, what what would that even look like? Well, you know, I'm an idealist, so I hold out the possibility that people's minds can be changed just through argument and rhetoric, and not merely because their interests are at stake. But clearly, as I mentioned before, the, the strength of of, of what had originated as a kind of Christian millennialist uh, campaign, you know, as it got generalized, depended on Americans suffering losses uh, and above all Europeans suffering losses, you know, of, of their own in ways that were, were visible to them, their husbands, sons, and brothers. And again, you can't, you can't discount the role that specifically women's internationalism in the early days, you know, made peace its its cornerstone. And if that's true, I think we we don't have to wait long in a sense because you know American power, formidable as it is, is not forever. 
and we're we're already heading into we're substantially into a multipolar era uh, actually russia is not that powerful uh, and you know if you just look at very basic facts like its national income and military spending um, but china is and it will it seems as if um, we're we're not going to have for very much longer the era in which Americans are completely immune themselves uh, to, you know, their global policies. Americans will see skin in the game and war will not be something so easy to choose because they're not exposed to its risks. And, you know, I think morality can make a difference, but so can a, a, a just change geopolitics in which it's more and more in Americans' interest to cons keep other states from initiating wars in the way that we have so routinely and, you know, with, really without much domestic pushback. Well, thanks so much, Sam. This has been a great conversation. And again, we absolutely recommend uh, this book to our listeners, Humane. How the United States Abandoned Peace and Reinvented War, and uh, we look forward to having you back again sometime. Thank you. I'm grateful for all the opportunities you've given me. Thanks for listening. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And for a lot more content like this, check out plow.com for the digital magazine. You can also subscribe. $32 a year will get you the print magazine, or for $99 a year, you can become a member of Plow. That membership carries a whole range of benefits, from free books to regular calls with the editors to invitations to special events and the occasional gift. Our members are one aspect of the broader Plow community, and we depend on them as an extra advisory council. Go to plow.com to learn more. Join us next week as we talk with Michael Sacassis about the looming AI apocalypse, or not, and the dangers and promises of technology. We'll also take your questions. Mm -hmm.